1: Whenever we embark on a new documentary play, we're looking for subject matter that gets at issues that we believe are really important for us to be grappling with as a nation, where the conversation often gets polarized, right, or stuck in this kind of binary framing. That's a place where we can start a conversation that could unite folks that would ordinarily think they would totally disagree with each other.
2: Welcome to Working. I'm June Thomas, here today with Isaac Butler, who had a fascinating conversation with documentary theatre makers Jessica Blank and Eric Jensen. But first, Isaac, you composed a beautiful piece of Deadline Prose earlier this week when playwright and polemicist Larry Kramer died And I found your piece really moving and honestly impressive in how quickly it was written. You talked about Kramer's work and his style, his contribution to American life, how he helped change the way LGBTQ Americans are treated. And it was beautifully written. And as someone who has had to do that kind of writing myself, I have to say I was really jealous because beautiful and fast don't. Often or even usually go together. Um, had you been gathering string for that for a while?
3: First of all, can I just say I really appreciate your your kind words for the piece. I did write it very quickly in maybe three hours, wow. and so I have no conception of whether it's well written or not on some level. You know, well, like it just sort it of went through me and then onto the <laughs> website. So I'm, um, I mean, it got edited and everything, but you know what I mean. Yes. This is, I think, the third piece for Slate that I've written in response to an artistic hero dying. Uh, The first one was about Sam Shepard. The second one was about Ursula Le Guin. And now uh, this one about Larry Kramer. And all three of them are probably the fastest written pieces of professional writing I've ever done. Um, I think when you love an artist and you've encountered a lot of their work and thought about it, and in Kramer's case, actually taught it you've gathered all that string already. It's already gathered. It's in some warehouse in your mind. And it's just a question of how to like open that warehouse door and start tugging, you know? (laughs) And, um, For this one, um, it actually started as a thread on Twitter about The Normal Heart, Larry Kramer's uh, 1985 play about the founding of the gay men's health crisis. And uh, Brian Lauder approached me. You know, he had read the thread and thought it would make a good piece. And so I already knew what the piece's heart was. Mm -hmm. uh, And I also knew that it couldn't be a million words long. And so (laughs) I didn't feel a duty to talk about Everything, you know, I knew the, the sort of couple of big things I wanted to say. And when you know that you can fold a lot of stuff in there pretty quickly. Um, I am always really going to be most interested in talking about the work. Am more interested in talking about the work than the person who made the work and how that worked out in the piece on Larry Kramer is actually, if you look at it again, there's very little about his life in it. It only has exactly what I needed to be able to talk about, uh, his essay, 1112 and counting and his played the normal heart. But because his persona was so outsized, the work becomes a way of talking about him and, uh, vice versa. Um, I will also say, though, just because, you know, the emotionality of writing Mm. comes up in our episode today, that I also, you know, every two or three sentences would take a break and walk away and cry a little and then come back and sit down and keep writing. So it was it was very painful on some level, but I was also very happy to do it.
2: Yeah. I mean, I have to say I, I felt that emotion. I felt that you you meant it. You know, you were feeling that thing. It was it was it felt very genuine. It's funny, though, to me, when you were just describing The Normal Heart, you said it was about the founding of the gay men's health crisis. And you and I know that's true, but that's not in the play. They don't mention the gay men's health crisis in the play, I don't believe. But today we are going to be hearing your conversation with Jessica Blank and Eric Jensen, who really write plays that are not just about the real things that are being talked about, but using the real people's words. Documentary theater. Um, and it's fascinating. I really cannot wait. But I just mentioned two names. That's two people. Who are they?
3: Yeah, so Jessica Blank and Eric Jensen are true hyphenates. They're (laughs) actors who've been in everything from High Maintenance to The Walking Dead. Uh, Eric is currently on the 50 Cent produced ABC show For Life. Uh, He was this kind of Alex Jones-esque conspiracy theorist on Mr. Robot. Um, They both write and direct for TV and film. Uh, They recently co-wrote and co-directed a really beautiful fictional movie called Almost Home about homeless teenagers in Los Angeles. But I wasn't actually talking to them about any of that, weirdly. (laughs) I was talking to them about this other creative career that they've sustained over the past couple decades, which is as documentary theater makers. Uh, Together they've co-written and Jessica has directed several shows that weave together interviews, court documents, you know, etc. for the stage rather than for the screen. Uh, And their recent show Coal Country about the upper big branch mine explosion in 2010 and its aftermath opened opened at the public theater in New York right before COVID-19 closed all of New York's theaters. So I just thought it would be really interesting to talk to them about their work and their kind of unique process. But also, because their work engages so directly with the world, I was really fascinated by what it was like to have the world impact and actually suspend the work that they Mm. were doing.
2: Indeed. Well, I'm really excited to learn more about Documentary Theatre and how they work together. Let's take a listen.
0: I am here today with
3: Jessica Blank and Eric Jensen. Together, they're the writers, and Jessica's the director of Coal Country, a documentary theater piece with music by Steve Earle that recently premiered at the Public Theater. Jessica, Eric, welcome to the show.
1: Thanks for having us.
3: What actually is documentary theater? How does it work?
1: Well, different documentary theater makers make it in different ways, so I can talk about what we do. Um, We conduct interviews with people which we record the audio of and transcribe those interviews word for word Um, we then bring those transcripts into a rehearsal room with actors and have the actors read them out loud and edit by ear and then go home and enter changes and bring new pages back the next day over and over and over and over again until gradually we start making monologues and then we start putting those monologues up against other monologues and finding the shape of the play. So it's like documentary film in the sense that the primary source is not something that comes out of our imagination, right? It's based directly on interviews we do with people. It's unlike documentary film in that we then create a script from that material where the roles are played by actors.
4: And you're, you're sort of playing theatrical DJ in a way. You're kind of like mixing different uh, samples and bits together, and and, and uh, new internal meaning pops up when you do that. Mm. And,
3: and so what was the specific real-life story of Coal Country? What, what was the subject matter you were exploring with that one?
1: So in 2010 in West Virginia, there was an explosion at a coal mine. Um, it's called the Upper Big Branch Mine Disaster. It was a national news story that... Um, 29 minors were killed, but several of them they thought might be still alive for a period of time. So, you know, there was, it was front page national news for the week or so that it was going on. And we followed the story and were very moved and impacted by it as it was happening, actually. Um, and it stuck with us. We had a, a newborn baby at the time that it happened, so we were not at that point point ready to embark on the research process for a new documentary play um but it stuck with us until we were and so in 2016 we went down to rally in boone county in west virginia and we interviewed uh family members of minors who were killed in the disaster as well as a couple of minors who survived it mm.
3: And so how do you choose the subject matter that you're going to explore? I mean, obviously, it's stuck with you for a while. Um, You know, your two previous works are The Exonerated, which are about uh, people who have been exonerated off of death row and and aftermath about people who were exiled by the American invasion of Iraq. You know, there's certain themes that unite them, but they're very different in many ways. What makes you know this is the thing we're going to devote a substantial amount of our time and money to exploring and making a piece out of?
4: Well, the, for me, the thing about coal country that struck me when we were watching interviews with family members of these uh, 29 miners who were uh, killed, you know, I saw the hope in their eyes. I saw a lot of fight. I saw a lot of bravery. I saw a lot of fear. And But I just couldn't shake the whole time as these images of these 29 men flashed across my TV screen and it listed their hobbies or things they like to do or whatever, how similar they were to men in my family. hmm you know, they were men who worked with their hands. They worked for a living. Uh, my family started off uh, working poor and, and scrabbled our way up to, to work in class. My grandfather was a mechanic. He never graduated past the eighth grade. He was a farmer for a while, too. Failed farmer. Worked with big machinery. Not as dangerous as coal mining, but still a very dangerous job. Um, I knew a lot, of, a lot of farmers missing thumbs and stuff like that growing up. But I understand rural life and I understand how tight-knit those communities are. And so when I saw a community that resembled the you know little town of 8,000 people that I grew up in, um, I was immediately drawn to the stories. I felt they were very important. And I feel for, for the most part, with a few exceptions, uh, Broadway and off-Broadway usually get working-class people wrong because the writers who are writing it are not from the working class.
1: And I think in terms of, you know what might unite the subjects of coal country and exonerated and aftermath think you know whenever we embark on a new documentary play project um, we're looking for subject matter that gets at issues that we believe are really important that for us to be grappling with as a nation at whatever given point where the conversation often gets polarized, right? Or stuck in this kind of binary framing, right? So, you know, coal is another issue where there's a sort of right-left red state, blue state argument about like, is coal bad or is coal not bad? Well, what if we talk about the fact that A, the coal is running out, Mm-hmm. And B, the incredibly brave miners who have devoted their lives, who are not making energy policy decisions, right. right, who have devoted their lives to getting the fuel that powers all of our electricity or a lot of our electricity out of out of the middle of a mountain, don't have safety protections mm-hmm. and aren't being looked out for by the, the billionaire and multimillionaire owners of these companies. That's a place where we can start a conversation that could unite folks that would ordinarily think they would totally disagree with each other.
3: You know, one challenge I, I'd imagine, and maybe I'm completely off base about this, but with your work in particular, is getting subjects, getting them to, you know, agree to be confident that you're going to take good care of what they tell you, to trust you, to open up to you, particularly when you're interviewing them about you know, truly horrible things that they themselves have been through and asking them to open up about it. And I was just wondering how you approach that problem. You know,
1: we start with the principle that we don't try to talk to anyone who isn't enthusiastic about talking to us, Mm. right? We don't chase interviews. And that's one way in which our work differs from investigative journalism, right? Where you gotta get, the interview at all costs, right? We don't pursue people if they say, you know, we are very much aware that we're talking to people about extraordinarily traumatic things. And if they say, I, you know, I've been through it with the media. I've talked about this enough. It brings up too much. I want to leave it alone. We say, thank you very much. We're sorry to have bothered you. And we go on our way. We're looking for the people. And they are, we find that they are always out there who are enthusiastic about telling their stories, where it feels like there's something in it for them. They're mm-hmm. enthusiastic about having a platform or getting to speak their mind and the idea of being heard, right? So first we look for those people. And then I think, you know, once we're sitting in a room with them, I mean, our interviews last like four to five hours. We generally go to people's homes unless they request to meet somewhere else. But, um, you know, that tends to be where people are the most comfortable. And we don't think about it really like a typical journalistic interview. We think about it like a dialogue and like an encounter that's happening between us as human beings. So, you know, Eric will often share more about you know, his personal experiences with people. Like, we have different roles a little bit. Like, I tend to sort of hold the space and, like, create the container right. and sit back, right? And and Eric leans forward, right? And shares with folks, not that I don't also, but um, I think, you know, and there's something in that that is an intentional uh, leveling of the playing field, right? Like, we're not remaining invulnerable and asking them to make themselves vulnerable to us.
4: It's surprising what we get into because the interviews go on for so long and it gets so personal. I'm always surprised at what, always surprised at how much people reveal without any prodding from me at all. Mm -hmm. You know, some of the most poignant lines from Coal Country, you know, one in which Dr. Judy Peterson describes the condition of her brother after receiving him from the mine, that was an unbelievably difficult moment when she talked about that she felt that she needed a conduit i think for that message to come through so it would come through loudly and clearly and you know it was our responsibility to be that conduit you know it's hard to have experienced these stories for these families it's harder than anything Mm -hmm. maybe maybe the maybe the third hardest thing i've ever experienced other than tragedy myself is carrying stories for other people especially when they entrust you with them
3: What is the process like for you, both? I suppose to kind of manage the emotional toll that carrying the story um,
4: uh, takes. Well, it's weird because it's kind of a double edged sword for me. Um, During our writing of Coal Country, um, you know, I talked about feeling uh, a relationship to these men who died, like they could have been my uncles or my cousins, or, or you know, I could have been, I could have gone fishing with any one of those guys. And in the middle of writing this play, which has a lot of grief. In uh, it, you know, my uncle and my dad died within two weeks of each other. Oh, And I'll be honest with you, that was, I don't know, six or seven months before we opened that that happened. And my work on the play, I, I didn't under, really understand what we were working on until I felt that compounded loss. Because then I just felt that times 29 families and my heart. Just burst open. I mean, grief is hard when it's one person, you know, but when it's 29 men and the number of families, the hundreds and hundreds, if not thousands of people that that affected that love those men, my heart just burst open. So I'm like, oh, that's what that's like. Okay, I'm going to come to the table and write from there. I
1: mean, I can speak as your wife. I'm married. (laughs) Yeah, speak as my speak as my wife. You can. (laughs) There's no secrets Um, here. I'm I'm married to a a true empath, a true (laughs) highly sensitive empath, and and it's interesting actually looking at the sort of different ways constitutionally each of us processes carrying these stories. I see the weight of it on Eric as we're doing the work because he. He is so sensitive and so deeply empathetic, and and so, um, you know, when we're in the middle of a workshop, we're we're working. When it ends, he usually sleeps for several days. Like it affects his mood. Mm-hmm. Sometimes he cries. Right? I like have nightmares. Like a whole, nightmares. Yeah. There's a whole way in which he's like really um, processing it all on a very personal, empathic individual level you know like I was saying in terms of our roles in the interviews I'm sort of by nature I'm like a space holder and so there's something constitutionally where I just feel it's not that I'm not empathizing and it's not that I don't feel those stories but there's something about like holding space for them that feels natural to me Mm mm-hmm Um, And it's not that it doesn't affect me, it does, but it's not, it doesn't feel personally, emotionally difficult, and I think maybe one of the reasons for that also is because our job is to take this thing that happened, to take the raw material of these stories where something terrible happened, and to turn them into something that hopefully has beauty Mm -hmm. that can transmit the lived experience of the people who spoke to us to audiences. And I really deeply believe that when audience, I may have seen it over and over and over again, when audiences receive a story fully that they know is a true story and they receive it emotionally, that something changes, Mm -hmm. right? So to me, like I take sort of refuge in my sense of responsibility Mm. in that process.
3: One thing, obviously, we just talked about is that the two of you are a married couple. You have a a 10-year-old daughter. Uh So I'm just sort of interested in how you create a structure for, you know, the creative work and your personal lives when it all involves the same people.
4: Oh, Jessica loves this question. Jessica, why don't you take it?
3: (laughs) I mean,
1: there's like a little part of my brain, maybe not so little, that's like a stage manager, a production manager, and a first AD, like all (laughs) rolled into one. I'm like a huge organization, schedule, time management person. Like my iCal is like Tetris, right? So... I, and I, I get a sense of satisfaction from that kind of organizational work as long as it's. I'm also doing other things and being creative and all of that. So, you know, I try to run a pretty tight ship in terms of the structure of our work life and our family life. And I, we kind of have to because we're both like so hyphenated, right? Like we're right. both... We direct together on camera. I direct our plays. We're both actors. Eric is on a TV series. We write documentary theater. We write for TV. Like we have a million things. I coach and teach, right? So we have a million things and we're parents. So none of that would be manageable if it weren't um, laid out in a color coded and geometrically satisfying way. <laughs> and, and, and does that include
3: like, I mean, like when you're working on coal country recently, for example, does that schedule be like, this is the hour when we will talk about the script and, you know, and then the rest of the time we're, we're, we're parents or, you know, whatever it is.
4: It, it did get like that, but you know, we've also worked together so long. I know I can hand Jessica a page of like eight notes or 10 notes Uh, on Mm -hmm. something and leave rehearsal two hours early and come back so I can, I can, you know, be a stay at home dad and, and, and parent. Right. Right. And then I trust
1: him to do that. Right. So there's, yeah, we, we, there's a lot of trust where we can hand things off to each other and a lot of shorthand also. So not everything has to be discussed. And we're like that sometimes when, um, with the more conventional stuff we write, like, we will outline everything together and break the story together, and then one of us takes what we call the bad draft, which is the draft before the first draft, and then one of us takes the first draft, and then we'll hand off drafts together until we get it close to looking like how we want to, how we want it to look, and then we'll work on it together, right? So we're comfortable sort of passing the baton to each other, which I think helps a lot.
4: But life is definitely a first draft, and we're we're trying to work out this new, uh, you know, sort of stay-at-home coronavirus thing oh now.
3: Because you're still making things through all this, right?
1: Oh, yes, yeah. yes. Well, so you know, coal country all I I don't want to say closed because they're hoping to bring it back right Um, but all of the theaters closed suddenly right so we had just opened like a week earlier right after a couple of weeks of previews so that happened very suddenly and so and very much midstream as the play was have a lot of momentum was happening around the play so a lot of my work work this last week and a half has been just working to ensure the future of the play and talking to the public theater every day about what their plans are and what they know, talking to, you know, people about potential film versions, potential audio versions, right? Like just kind of figuring out how we can keep the story moving forward.
2: All right, we'll be back with more of Isaac's conversation with documentary theater makers Jessica Blank and Eric Jensen after this.
3: One of the things we'd love to do with this show is help solve your creative problems. Whether it's a specific challenge about your work or a big question about inspiration and discipline, send them to us at working at slate.com. If and when we can, we'll put those questions to our esteemed
2: guests. Welcome back to Working. I'm June Thomas. For this week's episode, Isaac Butler spoke with documentary theatre makers Jessica Blank and Eric Jensen about their process, collaboration, and how they balance their work life with their lives as married parents. We rejoined the conversation with a discussion of the nuts and bolts of their creative process.
3: So I'm very interested in how you write and revise a work like this when you can't actually change the words that people say. You know, Mm -hmm. uh, because, you you know, when you want to rewrite something into a pithy line of dialogue, you can just like toss a joke back and forth and then figure it out. But here it's Mm -hmm. all about cutting and arranging and, you know, what the flow of ideas and structure are. I'm just wondering, you know, how does it happen?
1: That's interesting. I would say with the exonerated, it was pretty intuitive, right? We actually we didn't know how to write a play when we started working on exonerated so you know we well just... you
4: know I, I i was actually attending uh you know uh he's still with us thank god i was attending a lot of uh, readings for arthur copet the playwright mm-hmm. and he was uh, jessica was coming at the lark. A, he was teaching at the lark and we were jess and i both were coming in and acting for them you know in little scenes and scenelets and stuff and so like We did that at the Lark for like, I don't know, six or eight months or something like that. And unbeknownst to both of us, we were getting writing training. Like, you know, Edward Albee came in one day and, you know, gave me a great piece of writing advice that I'll never forget. He said, you know, when you're writing a play, throw throw two characters in a room, see what happens, avoid the obvious and do the inevitable. (laughs) (laughs) That's good.
1: Yeah, right? (laughs) You
4: know? Yeah, so I was like, all right, I can take that to my grave. But,
1: you know, so we had absorbed this, and, and we had also absorbed a lot just from both being actors. Right. So when we started working on Exonerated, we had a bunch of that intuitive background, but in terms of just, like, how do you do it, we didn't know. So we got, we transcribed all of these interviews, and then we just got our actor friends together in a room and had them start reading out loud. And we edited by ear and thank God we found that immediately we, we each would have a copy of the transcript in front of us and we would be like crossing out the same things and mm-hmm. circling the same things. And so there was something where like we were hearing the same stuff. We were hearing what was not theatrical, what was not dramatic and pulling out what was and it was always story, right? Right. It's sort of, so, it, it's
4: sort of like being in a jazz band or a jam band or something like that. Because like, you know, when you're, when the two of us are in a room together and it's just us tossing the lines back and forth, like themes start to emerge you know the 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 parts that are the most interesting are the parts that kind of the public never gets to see where Jess and I pace around for 2 hours and discuss you know what what this monologue or or exchange suddenly means if it's set next to this monologue or mm-hmm. exchange. And it's 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 like having a jam session, you know, uh, 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 and then inviting other musicians in to join, you know. And, and you know, especially with the subject matter of coal Country, it being in Appalachia, you know, we wanted somebody to come in who had some cred, who understood that kind of music, and I couldn't think of anybody better than Steve Earle, so.
3: Right, right. You have a sort of structure and a way of working in place, and then you've invited a third collaborator who's you know the, the great Steve who's Earl. a firecracker yeah yeah. <laughs>
1: yeah yeah and who who has his own process right so and you know how that works so yeah how did that so, work yeah thanks so, for setting up my question <laughs> <laughs> so you know we went to the three of us went to West Virginia together and he was there for about the first half of the interviews and then he had to go on tour. Um, and he then later came back to West Virginia several times um, to the area when he would play dates around there. Um, and so, you know, we had the same, we had a sort of shared formative experience of the place and of many of the people together. And then You know, Eric and I went into our process, which, you know, that experiment with the exonerated of, like, let's call in some actors and ask them to read the transcripts out loud and start editing by ear, we found really work. So we've actually preserved that. And we work in developing our documentary scripts. We work very heavily with actors. Like, what you can hear just by hearing things out loud, like, would take ages to figure out on the page, Right. Right. So, you know, we edit the transcripts down into monologues. We go through this crazy process where we then put each monologue, some of which are very short, right, on its own piece of paper. Then we spread them out on the floor and we get up on a ladder and we, like, move them around and see what different (laughs) orders do. And then we hear the actors read those, right? Uh Um, And we, like, mix it, right? So we went through a couple of workshop phases of that until the script started getting pretty clear. It had a shape. And then we had a series of dramaturgical meetings with Steve and with Oscar Eustace, uh, the artistic director of the public and talked about where the songs wanted to go and what they and, wanted to do.
4: And like I said, you know, these aren't edicts, these aren't marching orders or, or um blueprints or anything, but this is the feel. What do you think of the feel, Steve? And Steve came back like weekly with a new song or a second song or a third song and all of them were frickin' masterpieces. Mm-hmm. Like I don't know, like, if he threw anything away to get there, like. But I, I want to hear even the stuff that he left on the floor to get to where he did with us.
5: Well, the devil put the coal in the ground.
4: Devil put the coal in the ground. They buried it deep. It'll never be
1: found. Devil put the coal in the ground. Say
4: that'll be a some someday. That'll be a down someday. You'll be long gone and
1: We should say, too, his album is called uh, Ghosts of West Virginia, and it comes out, I think, May 22nd. Oh, great. And it's seven songs that he wrote for the play, plus three more that aren't in the play, but that are about West Virginia and the region.
3: So when you're doing those initial, you know, working through the material with actors as you're starting to whittle them down into monologues and stuff, how much material are you actually working with? The first time an actor is reading something, like how big is the thing at that
4: point?
5: It's like it's pretty, probably.
4: It's, it's this thick.
5: <laughs> yeah, in terms
1: of all of the transcripts together, it's pretty thick. It's probably, probably each one, I would say, is like 30 single space pages.
4: 30s? Oh, well. Yeah, yeah, I guess if it's single space. Something yeah.
1: like that. 30,
4: yeah. 30 or 40. And, and then. Yeah, 40. Then the real stuff, but the real the, the real thing are the court documents and depositions and and, and, and all of that stuff and, and judgments and rulings and, uh, you know, IMSHA reports and the governor's report. I mean, those, you know, you're talking tens of thousands of pages of material, you know, because yeah, we this did went a, to trial.
1: We did a workshop with the legal documents from this that was like really specifically focused on that. And with that one, we were probably working with about 50,000 pages of material.
3: Wow. And you whittle that. I mean, that final result is how long, how long, what was the running time of the show?
1: 90 minutes. Right.
3: So the final result is you're whittling that down to a 90 minute show.
1: Yeah. It's really, really, really condensed and distilled. Hmm. Right. And I think that's a lot of what our job is, is to like get just as essency as we possibly can with everything.
3: Once you're actually in workshop and especially in production, uh, Jessica, Uh you become the director of the show. So how do your roles shift at that moment and how does the process change?
1: I tend to give my actors a heads up at the beginning that we're married and we are used to inhabiting a lot of different creative roles with each other and that they might hear directly from Eric in a way that they might not especially early in the process in a way that they might not be accustomed to hearing from a playwright like he might talk because he is also a director and he's a very of the two of us he's a very visual thinker right then as the thing as the piece took shape and sort of became what it was and was more formed and became more really a matter of refining it and working with the performances and doing the sort of deep one-on-one work with the actors, then Eric would start stepping back, coming in for part of a day, like, and i start running things.
4: Yeah, and I also felt I was there to hold space to remind everybody in the room when the sillier seasons of, of rehearsal uh, uh, set in, as they always do uh, with the play, I, I was always there to remind everybody that this play is about 29 men who can't speak for themselves. Right. And that we're, we're their voice.
3: Right. And, you know, part of the challenge, it seems to me, in that is that the actors are playing real life people uh, mm-hmm. who, you know, depending on which documentary theater process it is, they either have or have not ever met. Right. And I guess in your right. actor's case, they didn't know the people they were portraying. And not so, beforehand. Yeah. And so how are you shaping those performances within that context? Because I, I assume it's not like you want them to do an impression of the person.
4: And We didn't show recordings to actors either. We li- really wanted the words to work. If the words weren't doing their job, we felt we weren't doing our job. Mm. If the words weren't enough, if something had to be layered on in order to make it come to life, we felt we weren't doing our job. And it's amazing, too, how much of our physicality and our language and our, our internal rhythms and external rhythms are carried in our language. That's the other thing.
1: It's really amazing. I mean, we discovered that for the first time when we were workshopping Exonerated because we had these, like, scrappy little work. Workshops where we would call whatever friends of ours were free that day, right? Different people every day to come in and read these transcripts with us. And, you know, so what that meant was that a lot of the people were like not correctly cast, right? Like they were reading people that were totally different age, type, whatever. And what was crazy is that we saw that no matter how incorrectly cast they were, people would pick up the gestures and the body language and huh. the rhythms of the real people just by reading their words, right? And so that clued us in really early on to like, okay, even as we're editing, even as we're shaping, even as we're hacking away and crafting and distilling and all of the stuff that we're doing with the language, we have to keep the rhythm of how people actually speak because it carries everything, it carries so much of our psychology. And so, you know, a lot of times when we do these plays, people wanna like, they wanna do lots of research and they wanna watch the video and they wanna listen to the audio and all of that. And we're always like, everything you need is in the words. Hmm. And if you actually play, like I had several people with this play, I was like, we would be in rehearsal and I'd be like, do it like Shakespeare, play it on the language, play exactly the punctuation that's on the page and they would do it and then they'd be like, oh,
3: there's a lot of thematic resonance between your show and the moment that we're living in right now. The show was going into previews and opening right as this crisis was unfolding. As you were watching that unfold, what were the echoes? What were the rhymes between these two situations that were occurring to you and that you're thinking about now in the uh, in the aftermath of it?
1: You know, the UBB disaster was a situation in which, you know, this. so this part of southern West Virginia was one of the most heavily and loyally unionized places in the country, right? This was like deep union territory where people had shed, shed blood to unionize, right? And the union loyalty was very, very deep. And Massey Energy, which was the company that owned UBB, was responsible for de-unionizing the area in the 90s. And that's part of the story that the play tells, right? Um, because you can't actually, I don't believe that you can talk about the UBB disaster without talking about de-unionization, right? So you have a situation where there's this regulated industry and unions and people have fought very hard for these protections and It's a very dangerous job regardless, but there are structures in place that are meant to protect ordinary people, right? And then you have a period of years where those regulations and those protections are systematically and intentionally dismantled in pursuit of profit. You know, we heard these guys talk over and over about how they were told to they they were raising the alarm about you know this infrastructure that's supposed to protect us is not here it's not working there's safety violations we don't feel safe and they were told to keep running coal mm-hmm. right they were being told to show up and keep going even though the systems that had been put in place initially to protect them had been dismantled and i think you know this is a really This UBB is an example of it, and now we're seeing it on a national level, that when you take apart those structures, when you take apart the regulations that are meant to protect people and meant to preserve some kind of safeguard, at a certain point you get to a moment where all it takes is a spark. Mm -hmm. All it takes is a new virus. All it takes is one small thing that is part of the natural world, and it can run rampant and create tragedy on a pretty huge scale.
4: Uh, I think the people who experienced this horrible tragedy at UBB have a lot to teach us about resilience, about staying brave, about staying true to your loved ones even when they're gone. you know, uh, and, about, and about fighting the powers that be and raising your voice when you've had enough. Like, I, 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 think we're, I think all of those things are gonna be in play now over the next couple of months. And, and you know, I'm, I'm, I'm tired of fighting fair, you know. I wanna fight loud and dirty because what's happening, what's happening to people is unconscionable. What's hap- the way people are being treated right now is the, is the end point of a philosophy that I believe is corrupt and wrong and values money more than human life. All of the things that the Greeks warned us about, your hubris, you know, all of that stuff presaged this, you know. Um, but thank God for Steve Earle; he got he got me through. Well, Jessica,
3: Eric, thank you so much for coming on the show and uh, sharing your many different processes with us. It was really great to talk to you.
1: Thanks for having. Thanks us. for
4: having us. We'll come on anytime you want.
2: Isaac, that was such a great conversation and it has given us so much to talk about. Um, I am really, really sad that Coal Country is closed at the moment and I hope it reopens because as a daughter and granddaughter and all the many more generations of miners, I really want to see it. Uh, documentary theatre is a fascinating way of getting information to people in a compelling form. I've been a fan of some documentary plays. I'm a big admirer of David Hare's and The Permanent Way, which is a play about a British train accident. Let's just pause for a moment. A train accident and the factors that led to it is really a great play. And I don't think I've ever read a piece in a newspaper about transportation subsidies and actually finished it. So (laughs) that proves to me that that's a good way of getting like complicated stories in front of people. But at the same time, I hated his play Stuff Happens, which is about the run-up to the Iraq War, because to me that felt like a rerun. I'd already seen everything that was happening on stage in the news. And I also was really getting into judging how well that actor was impersonating that person the accent was all wrong, that kind of thing, which gets in the way of the message. Have you found documentary theatre compelling as theatre?
3: Oh, yeah. I love documentary theater, I should say, when it's done right. And Jessica Mm -hmm. and Eric are very good at doing it. Um, You know, one of my first jobs when I came to New York was with a then-new documentary theater company called The Civilians. And (laughs) I like documentary theater. I teach some plays from that canon. Uh, I think there's a particular power in hearing someone's real words, but in the heightened way that happens when it's a work of live theater Mm -hmm. the tension between those things i think is really fascinating and can be really uh uh, productive i think it it probably works least well as you mentioned when there's sort of impressions of people going on Mm -hmm. right and most well when it's really an actor creating a, a role but I do think that it poses some really clear artistic challenges beyond that, like how you arrange the material or that you can't really have like dialogue in the normal way. And there's also this peculiar way that usually in documentary theater, the relationship with the audience is a little bit different. The actor is repeating things that an interview subject said to an interviewer, but they're usually looking out at and directly addressing the audience. So the audience becomes, in a weird way, a stand-in for the interviewer, even though they're not saying anything. And so the relationship between the performer and the spectator um, becomes very different. At the same time, if you can turn those challenges into strengths, if you can make them feel like inevitable parts of the thing you're creating, I I think it has a unique power, really.
2: I was really struck, too, by their process of taking interviews and turning them into a play by listening and cutting and shaping and listening and cutting and just kind of repetition. And that image of Jessica and Eric on a ladder looking down at the pieces of paper (laughs) that the monologues have been printed on. I mean, that will stick with me for a while, because it also is a reminder that this and really a lot of art is really a major feat of organization, as well as being art.
3: Oh, yes, absolutely. You know, I'm, I'm also reminded of uh, what Megan Abbott said about kind of arranging the story beats mm-hmm, on mm-hmm. note cards to get your TV season, right? Whether you're working in fictional work, non-fictional work, prose, TV, whatever, you know, structure is your friend. <laughs> structure is really important. And that importance is only heightened when you take away the other normal tools you're used to having. Eric and Jessica can't invent things people said. They can't invent people. They, they, don't, they don't have those tools at their disposal. Mm. But I also think that's an interesting thing to think about if you're working on a creative project. You know, if you couldn't change anything but how the pieces of it were arranged, what changes would you end up making? I think it leads to some really interesting answers.
2: Yeah, no doubt. I was also fascinated to hear about Eric and Jessica's collaboration, which, given that they're partners in work, in life, in creativity, in parenting, everything, basically, really does seem like a lot. Um, I think those of us who are partnered, most of us are spending more time than usual with our significant others and realizing what that means more than ever. Um, You've been a co-author not with a romantic partner, but still, do you have any tips for people who are collaborating on a creative project? What should you not do if you want to maintain your relationship with your collaborator?
3: I'm really glad you asked, June, because I actually think about collaboration a lot. And I think that a lot of the answers to this question are the same whether you're talking about a romantic or creative partnership. And, of course, romantic partnerships are creative. The life together is the thing you're creating, right? So there is this phrase we use in theater a lot, um, what it wants to be. Uh, Like often when you're talking with a set designer, you'll talk about the set and you'll be like, well, what it wants to be (laughs) is this as opposed to what I want it to be. Is this and and that can sound kind of cutesy, but I actually think it's voicing this thing that is deeply weird but also deeply true, which is that when you collaborate with someone on something in life or in work, you are creating something that actually exists separately of the two of you. It's it's a separate entity in some ways, and it sort of has its own wants. And its own needs. And your job is to listen to it and to uh, give it those things and to be generous to your collaborator and to the thing that you are creating at the same time. And if you can do that, not only will the process be more fruitful, but unexpected things will start happening. There are actually a lot of decisions we made with uh, The World Only Spins Forward that felt like on some level the book made them for us, like there was no other option and we didn't even really discuss it. And weirdly, one of them is the book's most fundamental creative decision, which is that it's an oral history. Neither Dan nor I have any memory of how that decision was made. It was just always going to be that. It always seemed like the right thing.
2: Isaac, I find that very inspiring. Of course, this podcast is also a collaboration. Uh, you and I are talking now. Our wonderful producer, Cameron Drews, is always supporting us and helping us through. Um, so, yeah, I, I feel that makes sense. I, I often think, what does this episode want to be? So that's a great uh, thing to ruminate on.
3: And speaking of this episode, this episode is now over. If you enjoy this show, please consider signing up for Slate Plus. Slate Plus members get benefits like zero ads on any Slate podcast, bonus episodes of shows like Slow Burn and Dear Prudence, and you'll be supporting the work we do here on Working. It's only $35 for the first year, and you can get a free two-week trial now at slate.com slash workingplus.
2: Thank you to Jessica Blank and Eric Jensen for being our guests this week. And enormous thanks to our producer,
3: Cameron Drews. We'll be back next week for June's conversation with public radio journalist turned food YouTuber, Adam Ragusia. Thanks for listening. Now get back to work.